Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The history of ska is tied to anti-racism and anti-fascism. The two-tone ska bands delivered a powerful anti-racist message and even opposed Nazis when they appeared at their shows. The struggle between fascists and anti-fascists have remained tied to the music even as the names and tactics have changed, especially as this conversation has moved to the mainstream over the past decade. Today we dive into the topic of anti-fascism. Our guest is Josh Fernandez, who wrote the memoir, The Hands That Crafted the Bomb, The Making of a Lifelong Anti-Fascist. Josh grew up in punk and opposed Nazis at shows in the late 80s and early 90s, and he continues to resist them in the street to this day. The Hands That Crafted the Bomb releases on February 13th, 2024 on PM Press. Also, my wife, Amy B., who is an editor and book coach, worked as an editor on this book. Her website is heyamyb.com. When we scheduled this interview, I remember looking at it and going, wait, who's, who's Josh Fernandez? And then you had to tell me Mm -hmm. because we were trying to do something a little bit different this episode. It's not just band person or performer talking about ska. So you do know who Josh is now though, right? Well, yeah, we talked to him. (laughs) How much of his book did you read before the interview? I was able to get through three chapters. I read a little bit slower than you do. Okay. Are you still working on it? Yeah, of course. You know how many chapters I read? The whole thing. Whole thing. Yeah. You're an overachiever. I bear the burden of having to read the whole book. As a co-host, you could read three chapters. (laughs) Yeah, at least I made it through three chapters. The day of the episode, I was only 10 pages in. So the first memory I have of you, I think the first time I became aware of you, we both live in Sacramento. And I I think it was when you were doing the Satanic Temple. You were going to do a Satanic Temple chapter in Sacramento. Yeah, right. I was going to write an article on you, but I think that you you were just doing too much. You didn't have the ability to make it happen. Right. Yeah. There was a lot going on. And and then afterward, after that one show we did, um, there were some really weird people who approached me and were like, <laughs> yeah, Satan, bro. And like, they kind of freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> they, they were like, but they like really wanted to worship Satan. And I, yeah, it was, it was a weird scene. And then, um, the satanic temple main office or whatever it is, they never got back to me about starting the chapter. So it was just a, the whole thing was a mess, but it was really fun. That one show. 
that we did. Yeah, but the Satanic Temple, their whole thing is like not worshiping the devil. It's all about being uh, antagonistic to our religious country. Would you say that would be a good way to summarize what the Satanic Temple is about? Exactly. Yeah, it, it's really kind of satire, which I which I liked, and um, I think like a lot of the people at that show kind of understood that. But then a lot of people also were like the Levian Satanists who were like more into. <laughs> yeah, people people forget that Church of Satan and and uh, Satanic Temple are two different things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I kind of lost interest, to be honest. And so you, um, again, we both live in Sacramento. You worked at the Sacramento News and Review for a while, and I wrote work there for a while too. But I think our times did not overlap because you were what? What were you like mid two thousand? Yeah, two thousand six to eight, maybe. I worked there. Okay. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah, and when I worked, and then I. Uh, I freelanced for a little bit after that, I think, but I, now I've heard you talk a little bit in vague terms that you used to antagonize some of the people or piss a lot of people off in the, in the local music scene. Yeah. I I think I, I don't know. I read a lot of, um, I never went to journalism school or anything or like, yeah, I never studied any journalism, anything. Um, I just read a lot of Big Brother magazines. I don't know if you've ever seen Big Brother magazine, but it's a skateboarding magazine. And um, they kind of like took over the skateboarding industry in the 90s and kind of like blew it up just by being so wacky. It was kind of the the precursor to Jackass and like all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. Like a lot of the Jackass people worked at Big Brother magazine. So it's kind of like the the journalism version of Jackass, where they just write about the most ridiculous stuff, and just like none of the articles would have to do with anything that the article was supposed to be about. <laughs> and like I I just liked that. I thought it was fun, and it was like a really funny way to write stuff. And like I think that was just not okay for a lot of people in Sacramento. <laughs> so. <laughs> I really just enjoyed writing. I didn't enjoy music journalism at all. I just wanted to write. So it was a bad career path for me. And you remember any specific stories of people that were upset with you or articles you wrote that didn't land very well? Oh, man. I, there were so many. Like, I, there was a band uh, where I, they were having a show here in Sacramento. And I just remember I, uh, like, instead of, of like, previewing the band i just took a bunch of r kelly lyrics and plastered them on the page <laughs> so i just plagiarized r kelly uh that was one uh another one was someone sent a hip-hop cd and i just uh oh i just corrected the spelling in the article because <laughs> they're like <laughs> there were all these words that were spelled wrong there was one guy who was uh there was one guy who was hosting a show for uh, Shepherd Ferry, I think. It was, you know that artist, Shepherd Ferry? Yeah. Uh, and he sent this unhinged press release that was in all caps and like all this stuff was in this. It was just crazy. And I, and I just like, instead of previewing the show, I just like made fun of his press release. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy went, 
absolutely ape shit. He like called the office and was trying to fight me and stuff. It was really fun. Now there's a, I have another memory. Um, something I, I feel like you posted this on Facebook or something where you it was a, a well known rapper that you did a phone interview with, and it was going good. And then then you asked him about the homophobia in his lyrics, and he just hung up on you. Yeah, that was immortal technique. Oh, okay. Immortal oh, yeah. technique. Yeah, and and like. Yeah, he was so pissed that I asked him that question and like he 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 hung up on me and then I went I went to his show cuz it was like a preview for a show and I and I was like right before he came out on stage I'm like, "Hey, I'm that I'm that journalist." <laughs> he gave, like he honestly gave me the worst death glare I've ever seen in my life. You hit him with that right as he was about to get on stage. Yeah, I did. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I don't know what, like, I would never do that now, but it's just something that I felt compelled to do. There was one, uh, there was one article I did where I was supposed to interview Ghostface Killer from Wu-Tang Clan, and I was waiting, waiting for him to call, and he never called, and he just completely messed up my interview. So I wrote this article about how I hope he's... Uh, tour bus crashes into a ravine or something <laughs> and i went i went to the Ghostface show at ace of spades uh and he got on stage and he like called me out he's like yo yo where's where's that punk motherfucker josh Fernandez?" And i'm like oh no bad this is bad but just stuff like that it was super fun to me i don't know i don't know what's wrong with me or I guess you read my book. You probably you probably know what's wrong with me. <laughs> you're you're you don't seem to be afraid of confrontation. It's just yeah, maybe it's just confront. There's something about I'm not like a particularly brave person, but there's something exciting about confrontation that I'm that I've always been attracted to. I want to bring up one more article. This was not for Sacramento News and View. This was for Submerge, which is uh, another weekly uh, in Sacramento. I, I guess it doesn't exist anymore, right? Right. So some years ago, you interviewed David Cho. Yes. And it's the craziest article. And I think you had said when you posted about it recently that you guys hated each other. Yeah. Yeah. He hated me right off the bat. So what was what, what happened? Did you guys just talk on the phone or did you meet up? I th- I've, I've been thinking about this ever since that article came out. And I think it's like we're basically the same person. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> We were both like so antagonistic and like we just wanted to fuck with each other and like, but we were like doing it in the same exact way. So it was frustrating for both of us. (laughs) And like, we were trying to one up each other, I think. Yeah. It it was crazy. And then like one of my students, like I I was teaching a writing class at that time. And one of my students was like, we like the biggest Cho fan ever. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're going to interview David Cho. So cool. This is so cool. And like, so I I brought him up to David Cho. I'm like, do you have anything to say to the student? And he said something like horrible about the student. And then I told the student later and the student was just so impressed. He was like so happy that David Cho just said this horrible, horrible thing about him. <laughs> Man, giving the fans what they want. One other weird memory I have. So we were both at this event at a Red Museum. It was like a it was a wedding, and there was bands there. Yeah. And but but you did a reading, 
And I just feel like you, you had a story. I could be wrong. It had to do with dropping acid and sublime somehow. Am I, am I fabricating that memory? Maybe I don't, I kind of don't remember. I was just listening to sublime in the car though today. Oh, and yeah. I, yeah. And I always feel weird listening to sublime. Cause I know like, I don't think you're supposed to listen to Sublime. <laughs> I think that's a rule, but uh, I love Sublime. <laughs> I, I I allow you to listen to Sublime from now Thank on. You. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I feel like Sublime has been so. Uh, what happened with Sublime? Like people really don't. I mean, it got co-opted by like frat jock culture. Yeah, I guess that's it. I always forget about that. And then some of the some of the lyrical content like hasn't aged well. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah probably not. But I also think that the other aside from it getting adopted by frat bro culture, I think there was also a whole wave of like quote unquote like West Coast or or whatever Cali reggae that's sort of seen as like oh, for sure. having been inspired by Sublime, but. I don't like fully subscribe to this because Sublime were not like a reggae band. They were a band that did like everything and they just reggae was like one piece of that. Yeah, that's true. I'm still yeah. going to, I'm still going to listen to Sublime. I don't give a yeah. shit. Yeah. You do you. <laughs> in defense of ska will return in a moment. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. All right, so back in the day, um, you saw Operation Ivy Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least once. I, I think maybe twice or maybe three times. But, you know, back in those days, we would, um, every weekend there was a show. And it didn't, we didn't even read the flyers. Like, we'd just go to the show. It was just every weekend, punk show. And, like, whatever bands came, we'd just go nuts. And like a lot of those, you know, a lot of those bands were like Operation Ivy and then Sweet Children, which became Green Day, um, Rancid, you know, all that stuff. And they were just bands. Like, I don't even think we knew what was happening, but we would just see all those bands. So, yeah, there were just so many shows of so many good bands. What were the places you were going to to see these shows? We were in Davis. So it was like the, the Davis Teen Center, the Veterans Memorial hall um, mm-hmm. those were the two main places there was uh in in davis so uh there was a oh man what was the there was another place over there in davis i think there were three venues that kind of like switched out shows but it was mostly those places do you remember anything about operation ivy like thinking back to any of those shows i don't think so it all blends in together in fact in my in my book i wrote about this show that i went to at the community park um mm-hmm. that's another place they had shows and i originally wrote that scene with operation ivy playing that show where i where we got beat up by skinheads and then i did this like 
triangulation where I'm like trying to figure out if that was actually the band playing and it ended up being Green Day. Were you at that show that were Green Day, the Green Day show that got uh, where Nazis showed up? No, that was in Sacramento. That was, yeah, I, I wasn't at that show. Oh, okay, this is a different Green Day show. Different Green Day show, yeah. Yeah, it, back in those days, it was just like, um, there were Nazi skinheads everywhere. They were at every show, mm-hmm. basically. And like, nobody knew what to do with them. So that that was the dilemma. We were like, I, going to shows was scary. It was like really fun, but it was also really scary and like really nerve wracking to be at those shows because um the possibility of of violence was so high (laughs) yeah what time period are you talking about when you say that this problem was like out of control uh it was around around 1989 1990 okay yeah so that that's when like so i was yeah when i was 15 i think was like prime going to shows and then um you know circling around the pit with with neo-nazis and getting beaten up by neo-nazis so the these neo-nazis like do you know who they were were they around town outside of shows or did they just sort of manifest when it was time for a punk show they were no they were um it, you know, like looking back, it, it would look so weird because they were, you know, they were kids like us. They were a little older, but, you know, they went to schools like I'd see them sometimes. Um, yeah, they'd be around. We, everyone knew who they were. I don't know where they I don't know why they they gravitated toward that part of the scene. But, um, yeah, they were just other kids. They were other they were other lost lost kids but they just yeah whatever it was they just um gravitated towards something different but yeah they were they were around we'd see them all the time it's gotta be a weird thing to see yeah <laughs> yeah it's it was weird and but it was like it was, and it was funny because uh during that time i made this big poster of like a swastika crossed out and i put it on my wall in my room and my mom came came in and she was like horrified she's like there's no nazis anymore <laughs> and I'm like, what? They're fucking everywhere. <laughs> she, but she, you know, it's like it just probably looks weird to someone who's not in that scene to like even think about Nazis. But like, but that's what I was doing all the time. I was going to these shows and getting beaten up by Nazis. So like, mm-hmm. they were everywhere. Were you know, in my little world. And you remember being a kid before going to shows, or maybe like when you started going to shows, and have what was your knowledge of nazis before that um yeah that's a good question i i didn't really know anything like i grew up when i grew up in boston i mostly listened to rap and was really into that and then as i was leaving around when i was 13 some of my friends started getting into punk and the boston hardcore scene was just rough anyway it was a rough scene and i knew that um but i didn't know much about nazis until i started going to shows in in davis and and in davis one of the first nazis i ever saw was a dude who was like half black weird Hmm. his name was paco 
and he was like a full-on Nazi. <laughs> we were like, what? What does this even mean? But he was hardcore. He would he was violent and hardcore. So, I mean, pretty early on, you get into um, resisting and anti-racist action. Was there was there an incident that kind of brought you to that? Um, I think all of us were sick of getting beat up. I, I was a little kid. Like, I was a little kid. Um, I mean, we were all little kids, but I was, like, physically small. And most of us were physically small. And um, we didn't stand a chance. Like, we were not trained in fighting. We didn't know how to fight. We, like we were all scared. And so I think that was the impetus for us to start like organizing. And, and, and it wasn't until an older kid, Aragorn organized us all together. He like, I mean, he was the one, he would have been a good cult leader because he was (laughs) like, he was very like charismatic and everyone loved him. And he was like a loud mouth. Um, And he had this way of just like, gathering people together so like he helped us become straight edge kids um we didn't know anything about straight edge until aragorn um he helped us organize into the first sacramento anti-racist action group um where we would you know get together and go to shows together and um make sure that nazis didn't come into the venues that we were at so before this group like you'd go to shows and nazis would show up and so like how would you describe like what would happen? Would they just start picking on kids and beating them up just kind of randomly? Yeah. Yeah. They'd like take, they'd take your hat. They, oh, they come for me a lot because I was small and like, I don't know. I'd, I've just always had this energy where people like gravitate toward me, but like sometimes in a positive way, but also in a negative way as well. So I'm always singled out. But, um, yeah, they'd like take my hat and then they'd, you know, push me around. They'd get me in the pit and find me and start punching me. Um, and like our little crew of, of hardcore kids, we were all different colors, like Puerto Rican, black, Mexican, all kinds of shit. So like they really had a field day with our little group of friends. So what is, what is anti-racist action or what does this resistance look like at this point? You guys, you guys get together with Aragorn and what is sort of your plan to keep them out of shows? Um, it's basically to, to never leave each other's side. It's basically like we're going to go in as a group. <clears throat> we're going to hide weapons in the bushes outside. Um, and if anyone sees a, one, of these, one of these boneheads show up, we're all going to go out and beat them with weapons. What type of weapons? Sticks, bats, hammers. <laughs> Just straight up, like yeah, West Side Story type shit. Totally, yeah, yeah. Like we, yeah, we. It wasn't, it wasn't super organized, but it was really like, it was really effective because there were a lot of us, and it's like, you know, kids alone are not scary, but like, you know, twelve kids with sticks is like fucking children of the corn (laughs) (laughs) lord of the flies shit yeah it really is so it's like it it worked and like it got it got really bad and and it got uh it was it was really scary and um but it worked they did they they stopped coming to shows for the most part 
was there a particular interaction that you know got violent or scary enough that they got their asses kicked enough i guess that they were like nope no more not really i mean not really it was really gradual and kind of like you know they'd still show up at bigger shows that were like at the crest or something or some i don't know that they'd be around but it was it was different once once they realized that there are a bunch of kids with sticks and weapons they like really thought twice about about where they were going to show up especially these little hardcore shows um but it was really that that incident at the cattle club where there were a bunch of stabbings and and Aragorn got stabbed and his roommate got stabbed to death. Um, that's when everything kind of just broke. It was it was really just, and I once once someone dies, it's like a different it's a different story, and it's and it's like it's really mm-hmm. serious. And I, I think you know those boneheads, even though they're boneheads, they still had hearts and they still had minds. So like they didn't want to mess around with like murders, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what show that was? I don't remember. I don't remember. I, yeah. I don't know. And cattle cattle clubs, what became Bojangles, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now Nazis, obviously they, they're, they, there's an ideology that's violent attached to their being Nazis, but was it inherent that if they were there, they would cause violent or violence or was it, not necessarily they were always violent yeah it, not necessarily and like i i went back to boston a bunch of times to visit and go to shows and stuff and like there were always boneheads there and like a lot of the times they would just go to shows and it wasn't always violence but um i think because of their ideology they felt the need to like support it and and it's um, it was almost like a reflex for them to sieg hail at a show <laughs> like it's like they, like they couldn't like instead of applauding yeah exactly yeah yeah <laughs> just like, they were really moved by the music so they Fuck. so yeah i think th- they just did that especially you know if they were in a group and they felt a little more um secure they were bound to do that stuff but um yeah every now and then you'd see them and and they wouldn't be doing anything which your your policy was, you know, you're not allowed here. Period. Basically, yeah, yeah. We would just try to push them out, no matter what. I know, like Gilman kind of struggled with this a bit in its early years. Like, what did we do about the Nazis? You know, some people were like, "We're we're not vi- we're nonviolence. We're passive, or we're pacifist." And there was some discussion about that, you know. And other other people were like, "Well, you know, if they." if they're not wearing their stuff or if they turn their shirt inside out, that's fine. But other people were like, no, they can't be here at all. And I think there was a confrontation at Gilman that basically turned into a big fight and that let, that got them out of there. But this idea of um, being pacifist with Nazis doesn't really work. Right. I mean, I think that's probably a big part of like what you've kind of dealt with your whole life. Right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and like I I I like the idea of nonviolence. I really do. And I don't like the idea of violence at all. But it's been so in your face and like I understand how these people work and I understand their motivations and I understand their end game. Um and I understand how they operate in spaces that are supposed to be like safe for people to enjoy music and 
it's so dangerous and it's it's so vile and like i was at a show i think it was maybe last year at ace of spades and like there was a bonehead there and he sig hailed and in about 10 seconds there are about 20 people beating his ass and i i was so proud of that (laughs) 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 yes this is like this is exactly what you have to do it's it's like it's so not glamorous and it's so not pretty and it's it's like such a horrible thing to have to do but like it's just kind of what needs to happen it's it's like people should not be able to like go out and be safe doing that shit so when you say you understand their motivation and end game and the what they do in spaces could you extrapolate on that a little bit yeah definitely so i mean their whole thing is recruitment their whole thing is recruitment Mm. and they're they're trying to like just everything about the way they steal the skinhead style because it's cool um the way they dress the you know their boots the braces like the way they stole all that from a legitimate subculture and tried to co-opt it into this racist um thing is is like it's all about recruiting more members and and um it's about ethnic cleansing and it's about like uh the white race and it's about um you know extermination of people who don't look like them so yeah it's it's just all bad it's just it's all bad that's their end game and like you know even if they're at a show not doing anything they're still actively recruiting and and that just can't happen a lot of this like white supremacy these groups and nazis and stuff like I think people like think that there's a lot of that it, it it it's focused on like their superiority, but a lot of it's focused on this this idea that white people are being rooted out of society or something. It's like this this false idea that they're fighting back against. Would you say that's correct? That that's kind of what drives us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I just went to uh, not just, but it was a while ago. I went to one of their rallies at the Capitol and it was like all about uh white genocide. Yeah. How like white people are being genocided out of existence. And so, yeah, they, they truly believe that there's going to be no more white people left. And that's kind of what's driving them. So yeah, it's, it's all ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. And like, it, it makes no sense. And, and when I go, I teach in the prison now and, when I go into the prison, I teach a lot of like either active white supremacists or ex white supremacists. Um, and they tell me all this shit. Like they, they, they know it's funny because they, they really respect me as a, as a human. And so like, they tell me that their ideology doesn't make sense. (laughs) That's so weird. (laughs) I know it's so weird. And like, Especially the active ones, like I can see the X X ones, but but even the active ones, they're full of contradictions. They don't like. I taught this one white supremacist this semester who's like, his whole religion is white supremacist. He's a, but he listens to only rap music, and he's a like he's like a slam poet, 
<laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> one that has to be like, honestly, the worst slam poetry ever. <laughs> Two, like, I don't understand. Like, how can you listen to Tupac in your headphones on the way to class and sit down in my classroom with Tupac blasting in your headphones and then write an essay about the Asatru religion? like some pagan bullshit thing. I, I, it, it's mind blowing. I don't understand. It's weird. I, for my book, I interviewed um, the the founder of Sharp, um, Marcus, I can't remember his last name, uh-huh. Pacheco. Yeah. And part of his mission was to explain that skinhead culture was not racist culture and to kind of explain the history of it. Uh-huh. And he, there was a quote where he said something like, "Oh, you know, I, I want I want these boneheads to know, you know, where this where this stuff comes from and this music comes from. And if they understood that this was Jamaican music and all this and that, maybe they might rethink this." And I, I appreciate what he's saying, but I also kind of think that they don't care because it, none of it makes sense, like you're saying. Right. It, yeah. Th- th- there's no there's no line of logic that you could present them where they'd be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> because it's not a logical ideology. It's, it's just, it's based upon hate. And, and so like, I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, you know, you can write about anything you want. You just can't base your argument in hate. That's my only rule. And so like, we end up talking about that a lot about, hate-based arguments um but yeah it's it's still it it kind of escapes them so you're you're very actively involved in uh, anti-racist activities and events and stuff now in in the in the present day yes now i'm curious as a person who was a part of this back in the late 80s and who's a part of it now is it similar is there is it different um like, what do you see as the thread of these sort of two time periods? Um, the, it's actually not that similar, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, I think when Trump came into office, I think a lot of people turned toward anti-fascism as an ideology. And they didn't really understand what it was. I'm trying to I'm trying to word this delicately. There a lot of there you know that rhetoric that came out a lot that was like punch a Nazi. Mm-hmm. I just I heard that so many times from people who have obviously never punched anyone. Mm-hmm. And like they'd kind of just flaunt that as their ideology rather rather than like a seriously well thought out anti-racist ideology it was kind of just like punch a nazi and like that was it you'd go on the internet lay that down and then go back home and your anti-racist work is done Mm -hmm. and so it was a lot of that so i think the internet changed a lot of things people in the 80s and 90s were just i think they were tough And, and there was like there was a lot of physical confrontation that happened um and the internet didn't exist yeah and 
you know, it was just a lot. It was a lot different. So I think the internet has really sort of done weird things to our culture and to our to people, and uh, it's made made people say a lot of things that I think they don't understand or don't mean and don't really need to back up. Um, but I think the core is still there. I think I think people want to be anti-racist and they want to have a movement that they can call their own and and um, they want to organize. So I think that's the same. What about from the Nazi side? Are these groups, what do you feel like is similar or different from these groups today as they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago? The ones today are trying to legitimize themselves. Um, they're, they're really trying to find ways into the political conversation. You know, they're, they're mainstream, you know, they're in the mainstream, you know, we had, we had, uh, people in office who, and they're joining school boards and they're, you know, they're, they're being vocal in, in the local community. Uh, so they're really trying to give themselves a bigger platform through more quote unquote legitimate forms of, uh, legitimate outlets like school boards or city councils or things like that. We have like, uh, here we have like white lives matter. Uh, we have Patriot front. We have all these little groups that are kind of like clean cut. Uh, we have active clubs, which are focused on like mixed martial arts and fitness and sports and, and clean living and things like that. So they're really trying to branch out and trying to legitimize themselves. Whereas the, you know, those eighties skinheads were, were just eighties skinheads. Like you could, you could spot them from a mile away. They didn't like conservative America wanted nothing to do with them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was just, they were just completely on the outskirts. Um, they were on the fringes. Yeah. And now conservative America right-wing America is in bed with this movement. Yeah. Although they, they won't admit it. Like, that's the thing is like, we have all these code words. Now we have all these, <laughs> these ways of like shielding from, from, uh, from taking responsibility. Right. We, we have, uh, you know, it's easy to distance yourself if you're not quite being honest about who you are. So a lot of these, these racist groups will kind of, do it through um, subtle language or code words, or we know yeah. what they're saying, but um, still it's how people like Nick Fuentes can actually go and, and get airtime or um, people like Richard Spencer are now back in the conversation. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's really slimy and it's, it's pretty obvious without being obvious. I mean, how much of this would you pin on Trump? becoming a, a serious candidate and then president not the not the existence of these people but this movement towards okay let's let's become a mainstream movement now yeah i mean it's it, it definitely ushered it along I, it's hard to pin something on one guy uh but his whole movement definitely brought people out of the wood woodwork people felt way more comfortable um you know after after he became president um, I started getting death threats under my door in my office at school, at the school where I teach. 
Uh, I'd get white supremacist cartoons on my door, all kinds of stuff. And so like there definitely was a correlation. People really felt empowered by this man. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a system that's enabling racist ideologies to to breed and exist. But, um, yeah, a figurehead can do damage. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So I want to ask you a question that uh, your school board asked you, uh, but, I'm, but I'm asking it um, out of actual legitimate curiosity. Can you define Antifa hmm. and its purpose? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, I, I'm trying to remember what I actually told the, the investigator. <laughs> <laughs> I have it written down somewhere, but yeah, let's, let's, yeah, let's yeah. it off the cuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, really it's just, anti-fascism that's it it's 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 against an ideology um that legitimizes extreme nationalism extreme capitalism bigotry and xenophobia Mm -hmm. it's an ideology that goes against that stuff and that's it and that's and it's really an ideology and so like it's funny i i uh i went camping with my old friends from a long time ago this summer and one of them is a reporter for the uh where is he a reporter for new york times he pulls me aside he's like wait so like antifa actually exists right because <laughs> 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 like, he you know it, it's funny it's funny because i've been involved with anti-fascist work for so long that like i forget that it has a stigma and there's like all this controversy surrounding it. Um, so like, I think, I think there's a big misconception about like what it is and like how people are like, Oh, there's no such thing as Antifa. There's um, it's only an ideology. And so like, of course there's groups of, of people who consider themselves Antifa. Of course it exists. Um, there's no, there's no leader. (laughs) There's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no office. There's no one funding anything. Um, it's just, you know, it's just a bunch of different people. There's grandmas, there's, there's teachers, there's, there's business people, there's politicians, there are, there's all kinds of people. So it's, it's really not, um, one big group. Uh, it's it, it's just individual people who believe a thing. So the, there's a fear of Antifa, not just on the right, but I would say within, you know, independent, maybe even some some liberal circles. Do you feel like the fear of Antifa is um, tied to people not wanting to fully accept the very thing that Antifa is opposing? 
I think it's pretty complex, to be honest. I think um, the media does a really good job of of catching the bad moments of everything, right? And so, like, every news article I've ever seen says Antifa in the headline and then people in black block, like, lighting some shit on fire, <laughs> you know? So, like, that's what's being fed to everyone. And, and it's like constant and it's like, that's why people, um, I don't know if you remember, there was all those fires in paradise and, mm-hmm. and like there were groups of citizens like stopping cars, making sure Antifa wasn't coming to like capitalize on the fires and set more fires and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like, if you think about what it, what it's like to be in one of those towns where like, that's what you're seeing on Fox news is like <laughs> these people dressed in black like lighting shit on fire and then your town's on fire like yeah i could kind of see that i'm like yeah I, I might be worried too but um what what they don't realize is that it's just like people who believe a thing <laughs> do you know what i mean so like um i think people are really paranoid because they're seeing one thing only just over and over again that's all they have to go on right they don't understand like who who this is and what people are doing and like how boring actually being uh an anti-fascist actually is and how a lot of it's just like writing and thinking and organizing and talking and making little zines and pamphlets and and um things like that so um it's just a a huge misconception and and that's all it is. There's a passage in your book where you say that uh, it's basically uh, like that most most of the most of the work in anti-fascism is done online. That it's not most of it's not in person. Yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of online stuff. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of um, figuring out where these where these groups are and who they are and and where they live and work and um, and things like that. And and the point is really to to have an alternative to violence, to to show these people in the light of day, and to make them second guess whether this is really the life for them. And a lot of people have have gotten out of it. A lot of people have have determined that being doxxed over and over and over again is really just not worth it. And they're going to, they're going to go do some other regular shit now. And that's the goal. The goal isn't death. The goal isn't violence. The goal isn't anything except for less white supremacists on the streets. So if their, their goal is um, recruitment and mainstreaming their, their message, your, your goal is to deflate it as much as possible. Exactly. And that's it. And that's it. And a lot of the time that works, I mean, a lot of the times it works, it, a lot of the time people will, will just give up. It's relentless. And there's anti-fascists everywhere. And the thing is that, that people who are anti-fascists are much smarter than, than people who subscribe <laughs> to a dumbass ideology that is based upon nothing. And so like, we have the resources, we have 
we have the brains, we have, um, we have time, <laughs> we have all kinds of stuff to make their lives miserable until they stop. And like that, that for me is, is what it's about. And they, like they try, then they try to do it to me too. And like, I'm not going to say that they don't, you know, try to dox me and, um, they're always, they're always calling into my work, trying to get me fired, but it's really hard to get someone fired for being anti-racist. Well, that, um, that's the subject of your book. It is. Yeah. The hands that crafted the bomb. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit? There's a central story going on, uh, but you know, there's also lots of side stories. Well, can you explain the central story? Yeah. So, so, uh, in 2018, I was supposed to be tenured before that happened. Um, my, my school did an investigation on me because they were worried that I was, uh, leading students into potentially dangerous situations. Um, and so their evidence was basically some self-defense classes, um, that I was helping out with and um and things like that and and it was because really that uh my students and i tried to start a chapter of the campus anti-fascist network on our campus um it's a college campus club basically um and ours was the first community college to start the club and right after that club started um i got a letter in the mail saying that I was under investigation and um, yet it was a, a year of, of investigations uh, where they pulled students out of their classrooms. They pulled other professors out of their classrooms. They did all kinds of shit. So was it, was it simply the fact that you started this, this organization? Is that what tip, is that what made them nervous that the, that the organization was called anti-fascist? Yeah, it was basically the the term anti-fascist, and they they said I'd have to change the the name. Oh, yeah, but I could. I mean, it was a it, it was an established club, so I couldn't really change the name. Part of a network, right? It was a network. Yeah, it was a network. Yeah. So it was like it started at um, I think Stanford or Purdue or somewhere. So some a couple of years ago, um, Teen Vogue wrote an article about. Um, this situation happening to multiple professors and they interviewed you in that article. Yeah. And you talked about this investigation, uh, which you, in the article you described as being one of the most invasive and humiliating experiences of your life. Yes. You also said it taught you that anti-racists are the enemy of traditional education. Right. <laughs> I want to ask about that a little bit, but first um, I'm curious if, them interviewing you and this article was that sort of the seed that got you be, that began the process of you writing this book yeah it definitely was i wanted to i actually started i didn't write the start writing the book but after this investigation happened i just started writing because i was so angry and like i was basically writing just to like villainize everyone who did this investigation <laughs> upon me so like the the very early notes of this book are just like pure rage basically. Um, but yeah, after this article happened in teen Vogue, 
um, I really started started writing this book. Another thing that you always hear in the news is that um, college campuses are all extremely leftist. Your experience was is that your that's not that's not the case with your campus. I don't I don't know if it's a campus by campus thing or if it's an overall misconception. I'm not really sure, but you felt like the very idea of being anti-fascist or, or, or these things, it was just a threat to them and they, and they were, they didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I think, um, I don't think any campus is leftist, to be honest. I think that there's a lot of neoliberalism happening on college campuses. Mm -hmm. I think that they're very good at using language. So they use the language of the left. Um, but it's really this authoritarian neoliberalism that I, I honestly think that if campuses were just leftist, that conservatives wouldn't be so frightened of these campuses because I think leftists are more, uh, interested in, in freedom, like true freedom and liberty and, and justice um whereas neoliberals are interested in the business model but also using buzzwords like diversity and equity um and the new one that's in our uh that's in that we have to write an equity statement now as part of our tenure process uh about how we decolonize the classroom so like they love this language, but they don't understand that like if we were going to actually decolonize our school, we'd have to probably throw out some white people. And like that's <laughs> that's the reality of it. Yeah. But like I don't think they really want decolonization. They want to talk about it. They want to theorize it. They want to they want to um put it in the academy. And behind a glass case, but they don't want it to happen. So, like, that's why I say that anti-racists are the enemy of academia because anti-racists are about action, and they don't want to do action. They want to. They want to talk about stuff. One of the quotes from your book that I wrote down because I really liked it is, um, "Equity comes from discomfort. Somebody's got to get hurt." Yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, like that stuff comes from my experience with anti-racist action and, and that, that stuff comes from my experience with like, um, you know, queer liberation didn't happen because people were nice. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so like, mm -hmm. if you think about those bricks that were thrown at, at the heads of cops, we can, we can remove that from the conversations about like oh now they have like gay pride stuff in target or whatever um they seem so far removed from each other but like those are the things i think about like what how did that how did this happen mm -hmm. <laughs> right how is it how is it possible that that gay people can get married now it wasn't because there was a conversation about it right it was yeah. it was there was a lot of a lot of like horrible shit had to happen in order for for liberation so like 
these are the things I think about. Yeah, the, the, this quote and and your book in general kind of made me think about something that um, kind of goes through my mind sometimes, and that's the idea that like, in order for society to be equal, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a painful process. You know, if you're a white person, if you're a male, if you're straight, uh, the equity is there's going to be some pain for you. I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying it's not worth it. It is worth it and like it'll be a better world for you too. But to get to that place it's not it's it, it might it might it might not be a pretty uh, it might not be a fun journey, let's say. And I think that a lot of people like liberal people they kind of want to brush over that. They want to like tell everybody, "No, no. Equity is great and it's it's not going to be painful. Nobody's going to nobody's going to take anyone anything from anybody." Right. And I think that that there's a disingenuous quality to that that I think that's like I think rubs some people the wrong way, and I think it it may might even be why some people are drawn to the right because they see the falseness of that. Yeah, I think that's true. I've seen it a lot too in the writing community and the art community. Is like there's a huge push to like hear the voices of people of color right now, mm-hmm. and I've I've heard so many writers like older kind of boomery white writers who are like, this is not fair. Like nobody wants to read my shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really hard to hear that because, you know, their voices have been heard for so long. <laughs> it's, I think it's, I think it's good to hear different voices. Right. Yeah. But it's ha- Yeah. It's happening a lot with, and with artists as well. Like, Oh, galleries don't want to show my shit anymore. Cause I'm a white artist. Um, and yeah, I, it's, some of them do, and I've I've seen this because they've they've sent me horrible messages. Um, yeah, they go straight to the right where they're accepted. Yeah, sucks. Yeah. Okay, so so you're under an investigation. So at the same time of this investigation, they're very concerned about this uh, self defense class you're part of. That's that's one of the issues, right? Yeah. Can you explain the self defense class? Yeah, so basically uh some people started it uh just as a way for for sort of marginalized people to to come together and and trade skills with martial arts or um mostly mixed martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu. Um just as a way of of self-defense and like empowerment and and fitness and health. Um and so we started doing the classes in my backyard. And then we had a few of those, and then we ended up getting a a space to do the classes, um, you know, where we'd have instructors and, and people taught the classes, and then um, just whoever from the community could come. Uh, free classes, uh, we provided gear and all that stuff. And so, yeah, it's been really cool. It's It's just a way for people to get together. One thing I noticed about, like, the organizing community is a lot of people just didn't take care of themselves. A lot of smoking, a lot of like just bad habits. A lot of people were just completely out of shape. And this was during a time when like people were really organizing against proud boys and against the right. And like, you know, people were going up to front lines and just getting their asses handed to them because one, they did not have fight. And two, they were just completely out of shape and like, um, so this was sort of a way to just, you know, get people healthy, get people 
motivated to to go out and and do stuff and exercise and stuff so that was the whole point of it i've seen you post um on facebook you know like photos of yourself after class and you got some blood on your face and you seem elated yeah yeah it's 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 an experience i mean it's like it it feels good yeah it just feels good i i, I like to exercise um but there's something about like sparring and and um mixed martial arts that's just like it's something else it's like it's like a really good bond with the people you're sparring with and it's a really good sort of like team building exercise <laughs> just mm-hmm. really punching each other in the face <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> In Defense of Ska, we'll return in a moment. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I want to talk a little bit about um, the structure of your book. So your book's not linear. You have this thread going through the whole book about this investigation, but you also talk about your past. You talk about other things happening in your life in the present. So it kind of jumps around a bit. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about why you presented the book this way? Because I didn't know how to write a fucking book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me just tell you this. My first editor (laughs) Uh who, who read the book, uh, you know, sent me the, the manuscript feedback and they were like, this is great about the book. I love this. Like the, the narrator is so funny and blah, blah, blah. And like the very last comment was like, what is this book about? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this book is pointless. <laughs> so like, yeah, I, I just, I, I had, um, and I think she actually like gave me my first chapter. Like I, I, I had it arranged completely differently and she's like, this should be the first chapter. So like, eternally grateful for that shit but um yeah i kind of just like i'm not a planner or a or a like an outliner or a i just go for it and like mm-hmm. that's kind of how it came out <laughs> so, like, yeah i don't know i it's i don't it's funny when i when i see people uh like i'll talk to other writers and like they show me their outlines and they're all like they have these different colored sticky notes and like everything's in different color marker. And like, they're like this plot, whatever is, is in, is in red. And then the other one is in yellow. And I'm like, Oh my God, it turns into math. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not a mathematician. I'm just going to write this fucking book. A lot of your childhood, a lot of your past as a younger adult is, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, dealing with drug addiction and, all kinds of other issues. It's interesting the way it reads because you know you're in you're in the present and 
you're a, a person that's very involved in the community and you're a teacher and you're trying to help students. And then it's like, you go, you go in your past and you're like, here's a person who maybe wasn't those things when they were younger, or maybe they had an inkling of that, but they didn't know how to like really do that in the yeah. same way that the you in the present is able to do it. Right. Yeah. I, you know, and one of the, one of the motivations for writing this book too was, um, there was a time like maybe five or six years ago when a lot of people on the left were like trying to cancel each other mm -hmm. or like, you know, it was very like this weird paranoid time where like people were getting a lot of power on the internet for like calling people out. It was just really weird. It was like people were just eating each other alive. And then I was always thinking in the back of my mind, like, oh, my God, wait till they get a load of, like, all this shit I've done. <laughs> like, I'm actually a horrible person. <laughs> and so, like, I really believe that people are capable of change. And, and like, I want everyone to be able to change. Like, even these fucking boneheads who walk around or, like, these dumb patriot front morons who wear their little chinos they can change like they can change like i truly believe that um and i want everyone to have that opportunity because without that opportunity i would still be a piece of shit i wouldn't be able to help anyone today so like i want people to read this book and be like oh shit if this fucking weirdo can do it then maybe i can do it you know i find it interesting that you talk about you know there's parts we talk about physically um opposing nazis with bats and stuff like that but then you talk about your your work teaching at prisons like you were saying and, and there's guys that are white supremacist but you're treating them like a human being and you're you're not like putting it in their face necessarily you're, you're just trying to help them and um you know, it, it may seem uh, on first glance that's very different. You know, like, why would this guy who would beat up a Nazi help this other Nazi? Right. Yeah, It and it's true. And it, there's a lot of sort of contradictions in there as well. It's like, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. And, and I think um, the editor also said, when people read this book, I think a lot of people are going to be mad at you. Like there's gonna be a lot of people with a lot of stuff to say. Um, and I think that's true. I think, I think, I think some of those contradictions will come out and some people will be like, well, how can you go into the prison and teach these, these neo-Nazis who on the streets you um, treat differently or whatever. Um, but I, yeah, I, I take my job really seriously, my teaching job, um, especially in the prison. And so I, yeah, I, I really, I don't preach ever. I don't ever preach. I don't ever, even in my other class, like none of my classes, I, I don't preach. I don't talk about anything other than writing really. Um, mm -hmm. I treat everyone the same because I love my students. I really do. And I want them to be able to write. And I feel like writing has changed me so much as a person. Like it's given, it's basically given me everything. It's given me everything I have writing, like without writing, I would have nothing. Um, and so I want my students to have that. 
Because that, for me, that was my key to changing my entire life around. Um, and I want everyone to have that key. Like, even if it's just like a little bit, I feel like being able to write is like, it enters you into this new realm where you have this ability to change. Uh, and so I, I want everyone to have that. Even if they're a fucking piece of shit, I want them to have that. Cause I, cause I think they cannot be a piece of shit if they learn how to write. <laughs> I went, do you know Henry Robinette, the local musician? Yeah. 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 He teaches guitar or he, I don't know if he still does, but he, he was teaching guitar to prisoners at a couple prisons. Mm. And uh, I went with him once because I, I did a whole interview with him, and um, I think he's you know he's dealt with people. He he's a black man, and he's dealt yep. with people who are Nazis and stuff. And and I think he's approached it very similar to you. It's like not really about that. It's about helping this person who is because they're in the prison system. They they pretty much you know their life has been taken from them. Whether, you know, you can argue whether or not they deserved it, but the reality is that they, their life's been taken from them. And, um, and he said to me, like once, like on the, I think on the drive back, he's like, the reason he liked doing this work is because the people in this system, they know that their bottom is, is so much lower than like most of our, our view of what the bottom is. Like they've seen, they have seen darker more horrible things than most of us have. And so they have the opportunity and ability to see something beautiful, you know, if, if given the opportunity to, because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my students last night, and no, I was last night, it was the other night. Um, he got in trouble for some stupid thing in the prison and they added a hundred days onto his sentence. And he's like, Oh, thank God. They just added a hundred days. But I was like, if someone out here, like someone like me, got a hundred days in prison, I would I would freak out and like that would be like the end of my life. <laughs> but he was just like brushing it off, and he's like, it was just a weird perspective shift where I'm like, yeah, our lives are so different. Like they they really do have like in there, it's just a lack of humanity that we yeah. can't even understand. So yeah, any any kind of like any kind of humanity that enters that prison is like taken as, as a blessing. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. take it lightly. I don't take that job lightly at all. And even the students who are completely opposed to, to me, uh, as a, as a person, <laughs> I still, I still treat them just the same. I think one of my favorite chapters in your book is, um, your, I think 17, you're fully addicted to drugs. You're living in your car in Davis. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're like hanging out with this dude who's an, a Nazi because he's a drug dealer and you're trying to get drugs from him. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What a, what a, that must be such a weird memory to, uh, to go back to. It is weird. It was weird writing that chapter. It was weird thinking about it. Because at the time it was so nonchalant and I was just like, yeah, it's hard to describe what it's like to be addicted to drugs, but that's pretty much it. Like all of your principles just go out the window. Yeah, I just, I just didn't care. You cared about the feeding the addiction above all. Yeah, that's it. That was it. 
And at the time, I didn't even know I was addicted. I was just like, I don't even think you think in those terms. You're just Mm -hmm. like, this is my life. My other favorite chapter in your book was um, the chapter you wrote about running the San Francisco Marathon. Oh, yeah. Because you really get into the, this um, this idea that you you were you had been trying to quit drugs and alcohol, and you you know you were going to AA, and that wasn't working, and other all these things you were doing weren't working. But getting into running and getting into ri- running marathons was the thing that worked, and how good it felt. Like I think you said that on during that marathon, you felt like it was the greatest day of your life. Yeah. Yeah, it it really was. It was it was like I didn't know what to do with myself. I was crying. I was crying. I was like running and crying like a psychopath, and just like yeah, it was sort of this bridge into a, a like a normal world where I didn't have to rely on drugs, and it was just like oh shit, I get it. Yeah, it was it was weird. I don't think I wrote about this in the book, but the actual reason I started running long distances is because um I was I was a huge mess, but I decided um to go on the treadmill and, and I was still smoking cigarettes at the time. So like I could only go for like maybe 60 seconds on a treadmill until I would just die. And so I went on this treadmill and right when I got on this guy, I fucking hated came in and just sat there and started talking to me. And he's, he wanted me to like get off the treadmill and go hang out with him. But I'm like, no dude, I got to run. And so like, he was just sitting there and he sat there for 45 minutes while I ran. (laughs) And then finally he left and I'm like, holy shit. I just ran for 45 minutes straight on a treadmill. Just to escape hanging out with this dude you didn't like. Just to escape this huge asshole that I hated. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, this felt so good. And I was like, it just opened up my world. That's a great uh, jogger origin story. Yeah, I should, I should, um, (laughs) there's like ever a second edition of this book. I'm going to put that in. Yeah, you could definitely got to put that story in there. (laughs) Can you can you explain what you get from running? Because not only are you doing marathons, but you're doing ultra marathons, right? Yeah, yeah. What was the thing you, you did in Utah? It was like 200 or 250 miles. 240, yeah. Two, uh, Moab, 240, Moab. Um, basically, well, one of the cool things is is I think two of the people at PM Press emailed me and were like, "I I started running because of your book." Yeah. So I was like, "Holy shit, that's fucking cool." Um, I I don't know. It's it's very, it's very almost. If I don't have a god or like a a religion or I'm not spiritual, but like I feel like it's the closest I can get to where it's like, it's I can think because I don't use headphones or anything or like earbuds when I when I run. I just I just it's like I tune out, and so like the longer the distance, the more I can think and then just be with myself and and sort of like work out problems or like i used to write poems in my head um so all that stuff can happen and like the longer you run the weirder you feel and like the shittier you feel but then you stop feeling shitty and then you feel really good and then you start feeling shitty again but then it goes away so it's like it's really this pushing of the body 
And I did the same thing with drugs. Like I do so many drugs that they didn't work anymore. Um, so I think I just have this tendency to do extreme things. Like I'm all in on something. And, and so, yeah, I think I just like the challenge basically, but it, it really does. It does this very strange spiritual thing to me that I can't quite explain. Okay. So I, I want to ask a question. Okay, so we're recording this in December, and this this uh, this will probably run in the b- beginning of January. Yeah, your book comes out in uh, mid February. Yes. Are the administrators at your college aware of this book at this point? I think they are. I mean, it's in like my email signature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to like get their feet wet, you know, like. Oh, there yeah. it is. It's like, I don't think they're going to like put it in the newsletter or anything. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, they have to understand. And the thing is, like, with this stuff, I, I didn't sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and like, they kind of brought this on themselves. Like, they put me through this horrible time in my life. They know that I'm a writer. Like, what else did they think was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, hopefully they just read it and are like, yeah, we fucked up, but you never know. Oh, we forgot to say the like the one little detail about the investigation. I that was seemed like the uh, I don't know if it's the worst part, but it's definitely the most insulting part, and that's that at one point they offered you $15,000 to resign. Yeah, I was pissed. It's insane. I was so pissed. I, I th- honestly thought they were going to come at me with like a couple hundred grand or something. Uh, oh, you'd think at least a year's salary or something, right? Right. I thought they were going to say $100,000 or something. I don't know. Just something where it's like, okay, here's your, here's your year. And then now just get the fuck out of here. But And he's like, you know, there's some w- wiggle room. We can negotiate. <laughs> I'm like, there's, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so insulting. And yeah, yeah, they, yeah. It, it's just, a, it's a big institution, you know, it's like, it's their bottom line, I guess. Has their, has their tune changed at all um, with the way things have, the way anti-racism and anti-fascism has been rolled out into the uh, post-pandemic world? Or is it just the same thing, like co-opting language without changing anything about the institution they have doubled down on the co-opting language you know what's insane is in my investigation there's a little section that uh tries to incriminate me for being part of a group called anti-racist action that's one of the sections so like all this time passes. George Floyd happens. The world starts, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it starts this reckoning, right? All these institutions are like, what the fuck? What do we do? So our school in its official documents now talks about anti-racist action. What are you doing to promote anti-racist action? And like chastising staff and faculty for not being anti-racist enough. So they've really like taken the language and doubled down. 
and now they're all about it. <laughs> that must really uh that must really get under your skin. It did. It did. It did. And it doesn't anymore because I realized like it I it's just yeah, I'm working a job and like I I don't know. They they got their own issues. I just do the best I can at my job and try to ignore all of the administration. <laughs> yeah, because I mean you say a lot of bad things about the the institution itself, but you like your job and you like working with students, right? Oh, I love it. It's the best. It's honestly the best job ever. Like the best job ever. Um, yeah, it, it's just, um, I think I went into the job being a little naive about like how down they really were. <laughs> and like, uh but now I realize, like, I, I don't want to have any part of their anti-racism efforts. I don't want to have any part of their weird little cult rituals. I don't want any of their shit. Like, I just want to do my job the best I can. Af- after my union represented me, I became a union rep because I was like, these people are the shit. Like, union reps are the shit. So I became a union rep. I do all my union work. Um, and then I, you know, I, whatever clubs want me to be their faculty advisor, I do that. Um, and then I just try to stay away from all of the blood sucking leeches at the administration office. Sure. Yeah. Um, so last question I want to ask about, so the, your book in, in the acknowledgements portion, you mentioned um, Rassar, Randy Murray. Yep, I thought it'd be kind of cool if you if you wanted to say who he is, and because I I knew him not not as well as you, but I knew him. Yeah, he was a great dude. I met him when I was uh, working at the News and Review as an editor. Uh, he is a rapper from Sacramento, who um, just a really interesting dude. Super talkative, super inquisitive, super curious. Um he would call me all the time with some wacky story. And like, he'd be like, I have a story to tell you. And I'd be like, okay, cool. Tell it. He's like, no, no, no. I have to like come to your house and tell it to you. <laughs> so he'd like, He would like drive from Roseville to my house just so he could tell me a story in person. So I could see like all his gesticulations and shit. Um, he was just a, a really cool guy. He ended up, uh, he emceed my wedding. Um, I got a chance to go to rock the bells on an assignment and he, he came with me. Uh, he, he was just this really, really great dude who, uh, made a career out of, out of rapping. Uh, he, he moved to, uh, Las Vegas where he, uh, he had a live band and he'd rap with this live band called the leak. Yeah. And he was, I guess he was a troubled troubled dude and he took his own life and i just uh i didn't know how much he was hurting and um yeah it's it was really hard so yeah he he's no longer with us but he left us a great body of work sure did yeah yeah so if if anyone if anyone wants to listen it's uh Rasar Amani, and then he used to go by Random Abilities. So yeah, he's a 
he left us too soon, but he he left us with a bunch of of great shit. One one more last question. Um, you you have a lot of tattoos. Uh, there was a there was a portion of the book I really liked where you're I think you're getting your arm blackened. Yeah. Right. And uh, one of your children, Ezra, is there with you, and you let uh, Ezra uh, help do some of the blackening. Yes. <laughs> and. Uh, had a great time, right? Totally. Yeah. One of the, one of those one of those uh one of those father-son memories that everyone has. What are some of your favorite tattoos that you have? Um I think my favorite one is there's one like kind of by my knee. It's this really messed up black flag bars that says sick inside of it. But one of my students uh wanted to become a tattoo artist. And so I was like, oh, you can practice on me. And so she ended up coming over um, and practicing on my leg and making this this tattoo, which is like kind of messed up. But it's really cool because she's like a really good tattoo artist now in Los Angeles. Nice. You got the early stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying ska now more than ever. All right, now all I got to do is finish the book. When's your plans to finish the book? I don't know, sometime soon. It's, it's, it's going to be the holidays, so I'll have some time to read. But you know what you have time for, dear listener? You have time to recommit yourself to In Defense of Ska mm. and listen to the rest of this episode over behind the curtain on our Patreon. It is 2024 now, and you've thought about joining the Patreon for In Defense of Ska for two years now. 2024 is the year to do it. Make it your New Year's resolution to be a full-time In Defense of Ska Patreon subscriber. Yeah, just help us out. We'll appreciate it. Next week, we got a great episode, but we're not going to tell you. We're just not going to tell you who it is. <laughs> he just couldn't help himself, folks. I want to tell you, but I can't. Big things coming. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.